Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Cognitive Recalibration Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Shravan. We've got Tone here with us. Hi everyone. Welcome back to this Christopher Nolan series. We're up to part three, and the final part where we'll be talking about Inception, Interstellar, and Dunkirk. If you haven't tuned into our previous episodes, we have part two and part one that you can listen to, where we talk about his previous uh, movies in his filmography before these ones. So, we're up to Inception, 2010. This movie is... 10 years old now. Seems surprising, I guess, because it doesn't feel like it was that long ago. The way this movie came about was after Dark Knight Rises, uh, sorry, Dark Knight, Nolan was basically in a position to do whatever he wanted, and the studio gave him license to do whichever movie he wanted to do. So instead of going straight on to Dark Knight Rises, he wanted to do something in between, and that was this movie that he'd been developing for quite some time. He'd actually been thinking about the concept of dreams since he was a teenager, and he started to do some research since he was a teenager into his university years as well. So when he initially came up with the idea of this film, it was actually going to be a horror movie with with the dream concept, but with a horror backdrop. And the studio basically said, you can do what you want. He pitched this idea just after Insomnia, and they said, you can do what you want, but just develop it and come back to us with the full script. But what actually happened in the end was that while he was developing it, the story did change and it became more of a action thriller with with the dream backdrop so when he came back to them in 2009 with the script it was actually very different to the one he pitched back in 2002 he got a 160 million dollar budget for this movie he only got that because he just did the dark knight and that was one of the most successful movies ever for for warner brothers so he obviously had license to do what he wanted we can get into the movie. Um, how do you how do you explain Inception? You don't, because pretty much everyone who <laughs> is going to see it has already seen it. So, <laughs> so everyone um, probably knows about it. Yeah, it's it's a movie that's so popular that like other media and everything like references it anyway. So everyone knows what it's about. I would say it's like a it's like a heist movie for someone's brain. 
but instead of stealing something, they're putting something in there. They're planting something. And they don't really but explain... it basically is a heist movie. Yeah, it's basically, it is a heist. I would say it is a heist movie. But they don't really explain the technology behind this process of no. going into people's minds. But there is... the What I noticed in my... This is probably like my 20th viewing of the movie. There is one line where they explain that this was experimental military technology that was developed to train soldiers in their dreams so that they could basically kill each other and not die in real life and get training that way. It's literally like a di- like a one-line dialogue in the movie that, that says that and then they don't revisit it again after that. Everyone knows who, who's in this movie, so it's Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio, Ken Watanabe, who's a holdover from Batman Begins, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, Marion Cotillard, Ellen Page, Tom Hardy, and obviously Michael Caine's in this movie again, in a, in a smaller role this time. One key thing that happened after Prestige was that there was a little bit of negative feedback on the score of the film, on the music of the film. Nolan wasn't completely happy with, with the output. So in that film, he used David Julian, who was his composer from his first movie onwards. In this movie, he collaborated with Hans Zimmer. So he he was with he worked with Hans Zimmer in The Dark Knight and Batman Begins, but not in any of his standalone films. So this was the first one that he he got Hans Zimmer in. This is probably one of the best soundtracks for a for a film that I've ever heard. It's very. What what are you going to say? Very. No no you you finish what you're saying and then I'll say what's very I'll keep you in suspense. <laughs> okay, oh, I'm on the edge of my seat now. Now I was just saying I was yeah. watching a live concert of Hans Zimmer where he performed some of the soundtrack some of the songs from the soundtrack and it was really good. Like the music in this movie is really good, and it's it's good in all his movies actually, Christopher Nolan's movies, but this one in particular is quite good. I was going to say it's it's uh it's very overdone now. It was the first movie that did it, but. Yes. The music from it has been carried over to a lot of other movies, and like it was the original one, but now it it's very overdone. I don't even know how to describe it, but it's the 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 horns. Wow, <laughs> that did that yeah. do a good one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that this, believe it or not, this was the first film that actually did that, and then after that, you've heard it in like every. It's in every movie, every <laughs> summer, every movie, every made. Movie. Yeah. yeah ever made and they still use it actually even now in some movies yeah i think it's not as for maybe like six or seven years after inception it was in every movie it's not as bad now but you still see it in in movies on the music like like i said most almost all these movies have great great scores the way christopher nolan gets music composed composed for his movies is he doesn't use what's called temp music so temp music is when you edit the edit together the film, you have some music from another movie or just some what's called temporary music that's composed over the first edit of the film. And then you give that edit of the film to the composer and then you tell them to compose music that's similar to the, the temporary music in that edit, but different pretty much. So their own take on it. That's what a lot of movies do. And that's why you get some really generic background scores for some, some movies. But Christopher Nolan doesn't do that. So he basically gets, even in the first edit of his film, it will have original music 
partic- uh, made particularly for that film. What he did for this movie and all the all the other movies as well is he just gives Hans Zimmer a an outline of what the movie is about, some ideas, some basic character sketches, and he Hans Zimmer has to go and compose music based on those ideas, and then they use that in the movie. So that's how the music composition process works in, in his movies. And that's why I guess it sounds so unique and original in most of his most of his movies. The other thing is You uh, probably you're probably gonna say this about the music anyway. Yeah. It's probably a trivia. Should I just say it? No, yeah, you say can it. say it if you want. Yeah, say it. Well yeah. Well you've you've I think you were the first person that told me this. I think in each the music is the same throughout the movie, but as they go through each dream sequence, it slows down. The time slows down in the dream, in reality, and the amount of time it slows down is the amount of time they slow down the music as well in each dream sequence uh, until it gets to the end, yeah. That's correct, yeah. So there is a song that they use, a particular song that they use as well in this movie to symbolise like how far they are in the dream or when to get out of the dream, I think, is when, when they use that song. So that song is the French song called Non Je Regret Rien. I've probably pronounced that wrong, but it's an Edith Piaf song. Another bit of trivia, since we're since we're at this, we're talking about this anyway, I'll, I'll give you a bit of trivia now. That song goes for 2 minutes and 28 seconds, and this movie goes for 2 hours and 28 minutes. Another thing that Nolan said in one of his interviews about this movie is that it again is a metaphor on filmmaking. In this movie, there's an architect, there's a if we go through each of the characters, so there's Cobb, who's Leonardo DiCaprio's character, who's kind of like directing what's happening in the in the whole dream. So he's kind of like the director. He's meant to be an architect. He's meant to be the architect, but, but he doesn't he's do it compromised. Anymore. He's yeah. compromised, so he can't do it. Yeah. And then there's... So that's um, why they get Ellen Page, who's the other architect. That's right, yeah. And then there's Arthur, who's Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, and he puts in all the set pieces and stuff Kicks. in the... in the Yeah, like he sets everything up in the, in the dream itself. So he's kind of there. He's kind of like the producer of the dream. And then, like you said, Ellen Page's character is the architect. So that's kind of like the production design or the set design. And then there's Tom Hardy's character, who is the forger. So he kind of acts as other people in a dream. So he's like the actor. There's Saito, Ken Watanabe's character, who's kind of the financial backing of the whole project. So he's kind of like a studio. And finally, there's also Cillian Murphy's character. The audience. That's right. So he's the audience. What about the Indian guy, the the chemical dude? He's like the guy who provides catering. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, popcorn. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Except it makes you go to sleep. Uh, so Fisher, who's who's Chilling Murphy's character, he's the audience, and Nolan says that he's an educated audience because he knows that he's in a dream as well. So he kind of knows about all it. So he's like a savvy moviegoer. He's not just any ordinary moviegoer. Coming to I guess awards that this movie has won. It won Academy Award for cinematography as well as sound mixing, sound editing, and best visual effects. It was actually nominated for Best Picture, but obviously didn't win. The other thing that Nolan does is that he insists on filming on film, so he doesn't like using digital media. The studio actually wanted him to make this movie in 3D, which he 
uh, flatly denied and it didn't happen. So he's not a believer in any of those gimmicks like the 3D. The other thing that Nolan does is he uses a lot of practical effects. So a lot of things that you might think are CGI. Usually when you watch a movie, a lot of things that you think might be real are CGI. But in Nolan's movies, it's kind of the other way around. So a lot of things that you expect to be CGI are actually real. For example, you know the part where the train goes through the city? That was an actual real train? It's a truck. It's a truck with a train on top of it. I see what, like, it's. it looks like a train, but it's a truck. It's Is a that car. what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a car. Yeah. It's a truck. And then they, the outside part of it is a train. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. when I say it's it's actually physically there, it's not like CGI. No, no, yeah. it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a truck with a train on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is the hallway fight sequence in the hotel. In, in the movie, they're walking on walls and walking on ceiling and stuff. That was actually filmed for real, and they actually built a, a centrifuge that had this room, and they could tilt it in any way they wanted, and they mounted the camera so it's fixed to the perspective of the hotel and not the people, so that's why it looked like they were walking on walls, but they were actually not. And when they filmed that action sequence, so there was two parts to that, so there's one part where they're in the hall, and that was fine because it was a square shape. When they choreographed the fight scenes, when they go from one wall to the other, it was fine because they wouldn't have to fall too far. But then there's a second part where they fall into a a hotel room, but the room is not square, so it's longer on one side. So they had to choreograph it perfectly, or else if they mistimed it, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt actually did all of his own fight scenes his his action sequences as well so he was actually doing these if they didn't time it right they would have been falling like 20 feet from one side of the room to the other side because it was longer on one side and wider on the other not as wide on the other side so they had to time it perfectly Hans Zimmer did get an Oscar nomination for this and then this score went on to influence pretty much every every other movie after this I guess we can start jumping into some of the spoilers for this movie when they actually go into the heist, there's three levels within the dream. Well, the way they explain it is that the brain functions around 20 times the normal speed when you're in a dream. And the first level is one week. And then the second level is six months. And the third level is 10 years. And this is for one hour in the real world. I guess we can get on to the ending of this movie because we can't really talk about Inception and not talk about the ending. So do you think it's still a dream or is it reality i've got i've got some evidence to suggest one way but you can go first i think it doesn't matter (laughs) that's actually what uh nolan said as well i don't think there's well people have theories i guess but i think the whole thing is it doesn't matter because he's with his kids or whatever and that's he doesn't care if it's a dream or if it's reality he just wants to be with his kids which he gets at the end that's right. So what Nolan said was throughout the movie, you see Leonardo DiCaprio's character spinning the, the totem and he's always watching it. But at the end of the movie, he spins it. But for the first time, he's not actually watching whether it topples or not. And that suggests that he's actually happy with where he's at, whether it be a dream or a, or reality. It's at least he's content. That was kind of his message at the end, but a lot of people, a lot of the audience just want to know whether it's a dream or not, and that's what he gets asked most. I think that's a question that would piss him off. He'll be like, stop asking me this question. He went to some university. 
I think it was Princeton. He went to Princeton to talk at their graduation ceremony. So he was the chief guest and he talked about Inception and how he gets asked, what is he in a dream or is he in reality? And his answer was this, basically that it doesn't matter. That's not the point of of the movie. Hmm. But anyway, let's talk about it anyway, because there is some evidence <laughs> to suggest that. Um, I think I think that it is not a dream. So I think that totem, that spin top is going to fall. And that's because there's one particular clue. So in the dream sequences, he's always got a wedding ring on. And in the reality sequences, he doesn't have a ring on. The other thing is, so that's that's suggesting that it's reality. But there's another thing that a lot of people bring up. And that is that that's not his totem. He already says that it's his wife's totem. It's not actually his. But then it's made very clear in the movie that you can't use another person's totem as your own. Maybe it's not reality. Maybe it is a dream. And that's why he has access to that totem. So that's... I mean, that's you can argue everyone says, way. Everyone says his wedding ring's his totem. Well, that's a theory. I yeah, know. so that's what they they say. The wedding ring is his totem. But how do you test that if you're wearing it or not? Is that what what they? I mean? don't. I don't know. <laughs> how do you test Alan Page's totem? What? It's a chess piece. Like what? What are you gonna? <laughs> if you win the chess match, do you have to play a chess match and then see who wins? I don't well, know. The way she shows how do it any in the of movie, these work. The way she shows it in the movie, she just like drops it. And it falls. And I'm like, well, that so, would happen with a normal chess piece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it has to fall at a certain angle or something. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, the I don't think they say specifically because no one's meant to know what their totem specifically does other than the person. So you never actually find out what the totems are or what they're meant to do. Except for Cobb's one, which might not be real anyway. The things I like about this movie, obviously the overall concept is is really original and quite uh, innovative, but I like the visuals in the movie. So a lot of people, whenever they think of Inception, they always think of that um, scene where Paris falls on itself when Ellen Page and Leonardo DiCaprio are first going into a dream and she's testing stuff out. That shot is pretty cool, but I personally like the shot in the first sequence where they're in Saito's dream and Leonardo DiCaprio is looking at a staircase and in the layer above, he's falling into the bathtub. So he's like falling into the bathtub in slow-mo and then in the dream, you see water come through all the windows, like on the sides. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's my favourite shot in the movie. There's obviously a lot of iconic shots throughout this whole movie. Christopher Nolan's production company, Syncopy, it uses mazes as as the logo. So it's kind of, I guess it's inspired by this movie. Another thing is that Christopher Nolan is actually a pretty big James Bond fan as well. So in this movie, in the snow sequences, so in the third layer of the dream, they have a, a skiing sequence where they're chased and that's meant to pay homage to a scene in Her Majesty's service. <laughs> have you seen that scene? It's pretty bad. <laughs> I haven't seen them. Is that with Connery or... No, nah, it's with... Um, Roger Moore? I think Her Majesty's Secret Service is one of the unofficial Bonds, isn't it? Maybe. I think it's Roger Moore. Who's the oldest bloke? Sean Connery's the oldest one. The guy that looks old. George Lazenby, that's right. Yeah, it's George Lazenby. I'm pretty sure it's one of the unofficial ones. Oh, no, it's one of the official ones. He's only in that movie. He's the w- Yeah, it's his one, one and only. Yeah. He's the Australian bloke. Oh, yeah, he is. He's from uh, 
New South Wales. <laughs> when, when, when you get some time, watch that skiing scene. It's hilarious. <laughs> okay, yeah. Christopher Nolan might, maybe he was uh, indirectly auditioning for a, a director role in a James Bond movie. So far, like in all of these movies, we've talked about what we like about them. But in this movie, even though it's probably my favorite movie out of all of these movies, there are some limitations that I have with this movie. So one is, well, one big limitation for me anyway is all the action sequences are cool, but the villains that they're, or the people that they're fighting, they're kind of just no one. They're just like nameless, faceless people. And they kind of explain it as when you're in another person's dream and you're foreign it's like white blood cells fighting an infection so they start trying to fight you if you're in there too long but that's kind of like the only thing they say and it's kind of the reason for pretty much all the action sequences in this movie are because of that like there's no other reason for there to be action in this movie apart from those so sometimes it's just used as a mechanism just to have a cool action sequence which is okay i guess but sometimes you need a little bit more uh substance is there anything you don't like about this movie? What's my groundbreaking element for this movie? It's look, the groundbreaking element is oh, I, I don't like using this, but it's never explained how the inception works or like how the machine works. But I guess he never explains that in any of his movies anyway. So mm. it's not really groundbreaking. Overall, I do really like the movie. It probably it's better than most. It, it makes more sense than most of other Christopher Nolan movies in terms of there's nothing too groundbreaking in this that, like, ruins the whole plot. Other than they're really scared to go to Limbo. Multiple times all the characters go to Limbo in this movie. They turn out just fine. It's okay. Like, why are they so scared? It's, it's okay. You just, the only person that goes crazy is Mar- Marion Cotillard. Everyone else survives it. I mean, everyone else that has... Well, we don't know everyone else that has been there. But from the ones that we know that have been there, they seem to be okay. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio is still sane, looks like. The, um, Saito. Who's the other guy? Saito, he's fine. He's fine. Ellen Page yeah. is fine. Does she's she go fine. there? Yeah. No, she doesn't go yeah, there. Yeah, she, she does, doesn't she? No, she, she just goes to... She doesn't go to Limbo. She goes to the third level, right? Or is that... Oh, okay. The yeah. snow level. No, actually, no. There is... Is there a level in between... Because there's a level... Nah, it goes snow to limbo. You know how they walk into where Marion Cotillard is, where he confronts her, like at the very end, and it's in this like skyscraper building? That's limbo, right? Limbo is the sat... The- Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Libo is the sand place. It's like the beach with the sand. And then he goes into a room with old Saito. Oh no no! I think it is the same. He doesn't. He doesn't go into another level of a dream. I think they are in limbo, it's but it's place. just Saito's in yeah. some other place. Yeah, because he. You yeah. Remember, he like lands on this. The first scene of the movie is where he lands on the shore with the sand, and then he gets yeah. taken into the the room with Saito. But yeah, so Ellen Page, Ellen Page is fine, Saito's fine, and Cobb's fine. So. Overall, they should be too scared of Limbo. That's my groundbreaking element. I'm changing my answer. <laughs> That's my groundbreaking element. Well, technically, he's. They say that they he's were. Been in it twice. Yeah. Yeah, and when he was in Limbo the first time, they got like really old. They were like 80 years old or something by the time they got out. So technically, he's and he remembers it right. So technically, he's got memories of like a hundred year old person, and he still seems to be okay. The other thing I like about this movie is there is a bit of like. I wouldn't say comedy, but there's like moments of levity between especially Tom Hardy's character and Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. They have a bit of banter. So that's something I like because it's not overly serious like throughout the whole movie. It is a serious movie, but there is moments of levity. Let's go into some trivia. I've got some mind-blowing trivia here. In an effort to combat confusion, television, television broadcasts in Japan include text in the upper left corner of the screen to remind viewers which level of the dream a specific scene takes place in. Fair enough. <laughs> that might actually help some people to understand this movie better. This movie only has around 500 visual effects shots as opposed to most other visual effects uh, effects epics which have upwards of 2,000 visual effects shots. That's something we'll talk about more in the next film with uh, Interstellar as well where it has surprisingly not many... CGI shots at all. Like I said already, Joseph Gordon-Levitt performed all but one of his own stunts during the fight scene in the spinning hallway. So I think the only one he didn't perform was the one I was talking about where he would have had to fall 20 feet to survive one of the one of the shots. Some of these trivia is like kind of fan speculation stuff, but if you take the first characters of the main the first letters of the characters of the main names, so Dom, Robert, Eames, Arthur, Maul and Saito, they spell dreams. I'm pretty sure that's just a coincidence. If you add Peter, Ariadne and Yusuf, that makes dreams pay, which is what they do as a mind thief. Not sure about that one. Apparently Kate Winslet was approached for the role of Mole, but she turned it down, saying that she couldn't see herself as the character. 
The movie's runtime, which I've already explained, is uh, 2 hours and 28 minutes, which is very similar to the runtime of the original length of the song uh, from Edith Piaf, which is 2 minutes and 28 seconds. The last piece of trivia I've got is that Yusuf, which is the, the Indian guy that you were talking about who makes the sedatives, is the Arabic form of Joseph, the biblical figure, and he has the gift of interpreting dreams. So I might, it might be a coincidence, or maybe he was named that on purpose. Through the gift of dream interpretation, he helped the pharaoh to prepare for the disaster of the seven lean years and was rewarded as a result. This is the same story that was also told in the Quran. Before we move on to Interstellar, I've got one element of Nolan's filmmaking that I want to talk about, and that is layers. So... Obviously, there's layers in this movie with the dreams, but like I said in the previous episode, Christopher Nolan purposely puts layers in his movies um, so that people notice details on the second, third, and fourth viewing. So this is a movie that has been studied quite extensively by a lot of people, so they've noticed a lot of little details here and there that you can infer various plot points and character details from. I don't think we've done... I mean, we've talked about the movie, but there's much more extensive academic deep dives of this movie that that you can look into if you want more detailed stuff but this is our take on it all right so after inception he obviously did dark knight rises so he went back to the dark knight trilogy finished that off and then he was done with that so he could really this was when he could really do whatever he wanted and at that stage there was a movie being developed by Paramount, which was Interstellar, and it was originally meant to be directed by Steven Spielberg. So he was on board to direct it, and the writer was Jonathan Nolan. But around 2012, Steven Spielberg actually left the project, and the director's chair was empty. And then Jonathan Nolan suggested that Christopher have a look at the script, and maybe he could direct it, and obviously he wanted to. So that's when he started developing Interstellar. So, like I said earlier, Christopher Nolan is a big sci-fi fan. He grew up loving Star Wars and 2001 A Space Odyssey. So, this movie leans in a lot into that 2001 Space Odyssey vibe. So, it's got a lot of kind of practical effects that they used in Space Odyssey that they used in this. Another thing is that physicist Kip Thorne was actively involved in the production of this movie. So, he was an executive producer but he also came up with all the theory and science behind all the concepts in this movie. And he apparently like came up with some equations that they had to solve as well to come up with the black hole schematics and everything. So this is this is unlike any normal movie. It sounds more like an engineering project or a astronomy project rather than rather than an actual film. Same with Inception. So when they came up with that hallway scene, it's more like an engineering project, like to come up with that sort of set. It's not something you'd see in a normal film. It's you need engineers to work on that to come up with that. So this is this movie is uh, quite similar. Like I said earlier, this movie was actually under Paramount. So Paramount had the rights for it. And when Christopher Nolan signed up to do it, Warner Brothers didn't want to lose out on on his next project. So what they did was they negotiated with Paramount to have dual distribution rights. So basically this is under two studios. It's under Paramount and Warner Brothers. So both of them combined gave Nolan a budget of $175 million. On top of that, Nolan also got a $20 million salary. And on top of that, he also got a 20% cut of the profits of this movie. 
And he also had full creative freedom over the script. So this was unlike any other studio film, probably in modern modern day. Like I don't think any other director would have got that much freedom as well as that bigger budget. What he did do though was he did bring it in under budget. So he brought it in at $165 million, $10 million under budget. This was always going to be his most ambitious and largest scale movie that he had done. So he was planning to make it as big as he could make it. Like I said earlier when we we're talking about Inception, a lot of this movie is actually practical. Um, you'd expect it, a lot of it to be CGI, but a lot of it is actually in camera. There was actually no green screen used in this movie at all, which is absolutely mind-blowing that a movie about interstellar travel doesn't have any green screen so there's always a practical element and the way they did that was by using miniatures so this is like what original like the original star wars movies used miniatures so this is like going way back so someone like christopher nolan who's like a groundbreaking modern filmmaker is using traditional techniques like miniatures um, which is quite interesting for example, the 4D Tesseract scene at the very end, which we'll talk about because I have some... This is another movie I have some issues with. That was also a practical set. So it was actually a proper set with like the books and all of that, uh, which they which they made. So in all of the shots, it's there is a practical element and then there's some CGI to like enhance enhance the image, but it's there's no fully digital images in the whole movie. So this was back when Matthew McConaughey was really popular. I don't know if you remember this time when he was uh, like in everything. He was winning like all the awards. Uh, but he was actually cast in this before he had all that fame, I guess, from from winning the awards and all of that. Christopher Nolan always had him in mind for this movie, even before he won the the Oscar. The only thing I'd the other thing I'd point out is the child actors in this firstly they were really well cast because they look like they could grow into jessica chastain and casey affleck but they've also become pretty big stars as well so mackenzie foy who was in conjuring i think cracker and yeah she was in nutcracker as well she's not in conjuring no she is but she she's in the first one i'm pretty sure oh okay yeah Yeah. but that might have been before this movie actually so yeah and uh timothy chamelet was young casey affleck Who's now, mm. I guess, getting stuff pretty big. He's in yeah, lots of stuff. <laughs> a lot of people didn't know about Matt Damon's cameo in this movie as well, so that was kept pretty secret until the movie came out. And the main change, so like I said earlier, Christopher Nolan tends to stick with the same crew in most of his movies, but the main change for this movie was the cinematography. So Wally Pfister went on to become a become a director, so he was doing his own movie, his director directorial debut with transcendence while this movie was being filmed so he couldn't do the cinematography so he nolan had to switch to hoite van hoitema is his name um he's a dutch cinematographer and he's had him since then dunkirk as well as tenet is the same cinematographer another thing is the non-human characters in this movie so the case and tars the the robots they also practical so they're not cgi either apparently they were puppets used in the movie and then obviously they had digital effects to enhance them but they were also practical i guess we can jump into the story as well so what what were your thoughts on this movie overall it's a pretty good movie but once again the great the game breaking element is um it's a huge one in this one the, the bookcase at the end look i'm not i'm no scientist but for me it makes no sense 
Yeah, so I think scientifically, up till that point, the movie made sense. I wouldn't say made sense. It, it seemed reasonable. Like, it didn't seem crazy. Like, it seemed like something that could happen scientifically and realistically. But after that point, like, it felt almost like a different movie. Like, it, it became more of a fantasy than, a, than the, the vibe they were going for for the, for the most of the movie. So that's where it kind of lost me. But I think where this movie is better than all of his other movies is that there is that emotional connection between father and daughter, which I think most of his movies, if they can be criticised for something, is that you don't really feel that connected with any of the characters, generally. Maybe Inception, you're only really connected with Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Like, the rest of them, you don't really know anything about. So this was the first movie where... I think there was some emotional backing in his in this movie. I think that is something I I really liked. I think that's something I liked even more than all the the science and all the visuals and all of that. I think that was the thing that I liked most about this one. The other thing I'd say, and this applies to all of these movies, there is a lot of complex plot points and complex theories that lie behind these films. And in order to convey them to the audience, there's generally a lot of exposition. And this movie has quite a lot of exposition but you can't really overcome that because you probably will lose your audience if you didn't have them they don't like beat beat you over the head with it but it's it is there i think it's probably a good movie until the bookcase scene and then it's not great still it's still good i still like it but yeah the bookcase bookcase part lost me one of my favorite sequences in the scene is where they go on to that planet with with the water where I think one hour on the planet is seven years on Earth, I think. I've got it here. Yeah, seven years back on Earth. So when they end up going on to that planet, they end up spending, I think it ends up being 23 years on Earth. So that's that whole sequence is probably my one of my favorite sequences because they go onto that planet and they basically they find out it's not very useful, that planet, and they come back. Um, it's been 23 years. And then Matthew McConaughey watches basically the life he should have lived from all the video messages from his from his kids. He sees them pretty much grow up in, in front of his eyes. And it's interesting in that scene that you don't actually see the kids as much. I think most of the scene is just Matthew McConaughey's expression. And you just see, you, you find out that he's actually a good actor if you didn't already know that in that scene. So he probably does his best acting in that scene for the whole movie. I guess we should talk about the music in this movie as well. Because I think it's one of, again, one of the best soundtracks. Again... So, fun fact, Hans Zimmer didn't even know that this was a sci-fi movie when he was composing it. Christopher Nolan just gave him two concepts. One was time and one was, like, relationship between a father and daughter. And that was used to come up with the music for this movie. He was also told that he can't use any of the similar instruments that he used in his previous movies. So that's why he's using, like, pianos and organs and stuff in this, in this movie compared to, like, the strings and horns and all of that you heard in Inception. So that's why it sounds so unique. And it doesn't, if you just listened to the soundtrack and you didn't know what the movie was about, you probably wouldn't think that it's a sci-fi movie. So obviously after all of this, we've discussed a lot about time. And I think Christopher Nolan must have a fascination with time because all of these movies have some concept of time bending or time distortion or something like that. This movie has it. And I heard Tenet is all about time as well. So something he must love exploring. In terms of awards, so this was nominated for Best Score, Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Production Design, but it only won for visual effects. 
I do appreciate this film because it is it is very ambitious and he did try to do something really big. Like you said, I did kind of lose it in that last part of the movie. I think up till then it was really good. And I still really like this movie and I still respect him for, for even trying to do something like this. Trivia. So Anne Hathaway got hypothermia when they were filming <laughs> one of the shots. So they, the water planet and the ice planet they were both filmed in iceland uh yeah. the part where she goes into the water was actually in like ice cold water and she ended up getting hypothermia because one of because her suit had a hole in it and water <laughs> got into it the wormhole explanation i don't know if you remember this using the paper and the pen so apparently it's exactly the same explanation as it was used in event horizon a movie from 1997 and the black hole effects that were used for this movie, apparently they took 100 hours to calculate. So they had to calculate some complex mathematical equations to come up with the shapes. So they did some proper maths and science and all kinds of stuff for this movie in order to make it scientifically correct. So that's the other thing. When they went so far to make it so realistic, I maybe, maybe that last scene is realistic. I don't know, but it just seems a bit of a stretch. Okay, uh, in terms of filmmaking, I've already talked about this quite a lot in this in this part of the the episode, and that's just his insistence on using practical effects. So even for a movie like this, he's used quite a lot of practical effects, and he he always uses relocations as well. He hardly ever uses sets. Both of these Inception and Interstellar, there's you could do deep dives on deep dives on these movies. Like there's yeah. so much content in there, but this is this is our take. This is what we can do in like the half an hour that we want to do this episode in, so we won't go into any more detail. Look, there's always going to be something you miss. Even the deep dives, people miss shit, so... You could deep dive into, like, a scene into this movie and have a whole episode on it, so... All right, so after after Interstellar, I think he wanted to do something more low-key because he's done something so big. So in between Dunkirk and Interstellar, he actually did a documentary called Quay and this was on the Quay brothers who are puppeteers so it was just an eight minute documentary that was included in a blu-ray which had a collection of the brothers other puppeteering shorts he, he did a short film on that and this was kind of like following in a sense because he was the director photographer music editor so he did everything so it was pretty low key, low key and low budget and then we come to Dunkirk. So Dunkirk is about the Dunkirk evacuation in World War II. This movie is, again, a little bit different. I think the concept, well, the story is pretty simple again. It's just the execution is where the complexity comes in. So he's done it as three different timelines that all converge into one timeline at the end, except each of the timelines moves at a different speed. You've got the land timeline, which moves which is one week, and then you've got the sea timeline, the boats. Mm. which is one day, and then you've got the air timeline with the with the fighter planes, which is one hour, one I hour. think. So, And they all converge into one. The first time I watched this, maybe I was expecting something different because it is very different to his other movies. So firstly, there is hardly any dialogue. So it's not like his other movies where it's there's like all this exposition and there's heaps of dialogue. There's, there's hardly any dialogue in this movie at all. It is shorter than his other movies, which is interesting, probably because there isn't as much to show in this movie. And again, a lot of it is shot practically. 
I did like this movie, but it's probably not my favorite one. It's not close to being my favorite one out of his movies. Yeah, it's uh, it's a good movie, and I know people who watched it at the theater really enjoyed it. I think the sound design's meant to be really good, which you probably don't get when you're watching it on a laptop or on on TV at home. Overall, though, it's not like compared to other similar movies in in the genre. I don't think it's much better than those. Like I think um, a similar movie would be Sam Mendes's movie, nineteen seventeen. Seventeen, yeah, nineteen seventeen. Seventeen, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's much better than this, and much more interesting. Both of them have you could call a gimmick. So that one has the continuous shot throughout the movie, and this has the different timelines. Nine, I. Personally, enjoyed 1917 more, but I did also watch that in the cinema, whereas I didn't watch this one in the cinema. So maybe yeah, that same. makes a difference. Yeah. It's not a bad movie, though. It's 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 good, but I wouldn't be going back to watch it. Yeah, it doesn't have as much replay value for me either. The other thing, we can mention the score again. So the score, apparently it's a continuous score that goes throughout the whole movie, and he's used like the clock ticking as a piece of music in the score pretty much. It plays a role in the movie. Actually, talking about that, if we go back to Interstellar, in that scene where they go to the planet, you can hear a clock ticking, uh, and that's the score for that scene, pretty much. Apparently, each tick in that scene is a day on Earth, so they've timed it so that it's a day on Earth, so you can pretty much count like the day is passing by. I forgot to mention that before. But yeah, Dunkirk, it's good. I, I, I don't have too much to say about it, but it's, uh, it doesn't have like the same level of complexity that his other movies have. In terms of story, I can see uh, if you like war movies, you'll probably really like it. But if you don't like that genre, I don't think you'll particularly enjoy this. It's not going to change your mind about it. The only thing I'd say is you feel very on edge throughout the whole movie. It's it kind of builds the tension very well throughout the whole movie, and there's there's certain scenes where that fighter pilot's trying to get out of his cockpit and he's stuck and he's like drowning. Yeah, that do build up the tension quite well. So he's there's, there's parts that I, I did really enjoy, but I wouldn't go revisiting this again and again that often. Uh, trivia, not too much on this, but apparently there are about 30 Dunkirk survivors that attended the premiere in London, and they're all in their like mid-90s. And when they watched this, they said that it did capture the event pretty accurately, but the soundtrack was louder than the actual bombardment that they experienced, which is... Uh, Interesting. <laughs> so the, the sequence which I was just talking about before where the fighter pilot is drowning, they put an IMAX camera into that plane and apparently when they put the camera into that plane, it started sinking much faster than they thought it would and that, that plane actually just sank and they had to pull it out and fix the IMAX camera to, after they'd filmed it. But apparently that shot is all in the movie. So the, with, the, with the camera sinking, they, had, they still kept that shot in the movie. Apparently, Christopher Nolan decided to cast young and inexperienced actors because there were young and inexperienced soldiers on the land in Dunkirk. So that's that was his reasoning for it, and that's why Harry Styles is in this movie. You don't, <laughs> yeah, you don't really know many of the actors, I guess. Tom Hardy is in it. You don't see his face got, like, much. like a mask though. on. I think that's all I had. I mean, the only other point that I had was that a lot of people cursed the Royal Air Force for not protecting them. And that's actually what happened in real life, but that's because the Royal Air Force was already at already out and attacking the bombers sent out to bomb the soldiers on the beaches. 
the bombers did that did attack but they were the only ones that got got past the fighters so apparently they were already uh, further inland and that's why a lot of people didn't see the royal air force and they assumed that they'd not come to help last thing we'll say the elements of filmmaking intercutting scenes so he does that a lot in all of his films so you have one thing that's happening something else that's happening and they cut between those scenes this is probably the prime example of that because you've got three different basically storylines that are intercutting and they all merge it at the end i guess before we finish up we could quickly do a ranking of our personal a personal ranking of his movies just the ones we've discussed so excluding the dark knight trilogy where do you stand probably inception's my favorite and i'll put dunkirk as my least favorite uh, the ones I've seen. I haven't seen Insomnia following. And then I would put the put the other ones in the middle, probably Prestige, then Memento, then Interstellar, I would say. Similar for me, I'd probably put Inception, then Memento, then Prestige, then Interstellar, then Insomnia, then Following. Yeah, you did say Dunkirk. And oh, Dunkirk is probably above Following. I okay. like all of them, yeah. but yeah. Last question, which which of these films was the highest grossing one? These ones, okay. Maybe Interstellar or Inception, one of those two? Yep, it was Inception. So Inception made... 800 million. You're not far off. I think it's 800 and... So Inception made 829 million. Interstellar made 700 million. The rest of them are, are lower than that. So I think uh, yeah. Dunkirk made 500 odd. Prestige was... Prestige was a hundred million. I think Insomnia was around the same, so they're all lower than that. But his most successful non-Dark Knight movie is Inception. Oh, I guess that brings us to the end of this series. We've got through it is three episodes. This was in anticipation for Tenet. We still don't know when we're going to be able to watch it. I don't <laughs> yeah. think it'll be anytime soon for a while. So we'll we'll review that when whenever we can. I've heard good and bad things about it so far it's very early not many people have seen it but from the people who have seen it some people like it some people don't but that's if you like chris nolan stuff then you would love it so maybe we'll love it i don't know <laughs> anyway we'll find out so I'm, I'm not like a he's not my i think you like him probably more than i do yeah probably he's probably my favorite director i would say i like him because he's more he's almost not like a director the way he talks and the way he makes his movies, it's like he's a professor or he's an academic or something. He, he comes from a very mathematical and scientific standpoint when, when he makes his movies, which is what I appreciate. So that, I think that's why I like him more than more than his actual movies themselves, just the way he, he goes about them. But your favourite director is Michael Bay? 100%. <laughs> seen every movie of his <laughs> have you you might not have seen some of his older ones maybe the, our next series should be on michael bay i don't know i i, I have a feeling I, I haven't seen the latest transformers because i've tried but i just couldn't <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've seen a lot of his movies i've probably seen more than most i i haven't seen many of his movies i've seen i've seen some of the transformers ones what else has he done apart from those con air you said con air haven't you is that okay? No, I've seen that. Yeah, Pearl I didn't Harbor. realize that was uh, Michael Bay. Pearl Harbor, I haven't seen. I know he's done other stuff, but that's yeah. for another time. Yes, uh, for, maybe for a better 
a list of better movies. <laughs> yes. Maybe. Oh, no, he did do Connor. He did The Rock. He did The Rock. Oh, okay. Yeah. I haven't seen that one. Anyway, if people have questions or uh, theories or whatever they want to talk about about Christopher Nolan movies, how do they contact us to tell us about them? So we've got uh, Facebook and Instagram at Cognitive Recalibration and uh, Gmail at Cognitive Recalibration dot Cognitive Recalibration at gmail.com and then our Twitter handle is at C Recalibration. And if you want to support the podcast, please do give us a review on iTunes or Spotify because it makes us more discoverable on search engines. Also, if you want to support us financially, we do have Amazon affiliate links. I'll put links to all of Christopher Nolan's filmography in the description of this episode so you can just click through and purchase the Blu-rays or DVDs and we'll get a bit of a kickback. Also, we have Buy Me A Coffee, which is a mechanism where you can donate to us and we'll use all donations uh, to further develop the podcast. So until next time then, I don't know what it will be next time. Yeah, I don't know. Like this is uncertain time. So every every episode is a surprise. That's That's all we had. Thanks for listening and keep safe and we'll see you guys in the next episode. See ya. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.